Well, hi everyone and welcome to the uh, second in the CMS Pensions Lawcast in our current Master Trust series. My name is Jay Fassam and I'm joined on this Lawcast by my colleague Tom Bates. Uh, in the first episode in the Master Trust series, our colleagues Keith, Harry and Katie took us through the Master Trust landscape and they looked in particular at the process, which many of our clients are going through at the moment, of transferring a standalone occupational DC scheme into a Master Trust. And we know that from the stats available, there's about 40 billion of assets uh, under management in the in these DC Master Trusts at the moment. So it's a really big area and it's growing for our clients at the moment. Today, we're going to move on and we're going to look a bit more at the ongoing considerations on the Master Trust side. So what do trustees have to do to deliver that governance model that our colleagues touched on last time? As we explained in the first law cast in our Master Trust series, our focus is on the Master Trust defining legislation, meaning an occupational pension scheme, which is providing money purchase benefits and which is used by two or more employers which are not connected with each other. That's what we mean when we're talking about a master trust. And of course, the commercially operated master trust we're focusing on will have a lot more employers than just two. It'll be a, a very, very big scheme. As we mentioned in the first episode in this series, the, the governance, investment opportunities, communications and member engagement are some of the main benefits that the clients are seeing when they move across the master trust model. Uh, and we're really seeing members starting to benefit from the, from the bigger scale available. And in this episode, what we want to do is explore those potential benefits in more detail, discuss the regulatory framework behind how they're delivered, and think about master trust beyond that initial authorization and transfer process. Now, of course, all pension schemes and all pension scheme trustees have a fiduciary duty to act in members' best interests and to ensure that they have the governance structures in place to ensure that they can discharge that duty. But our focus today is on the additional considerations which are in the master trust sphere. We'll discuss a number of these issues in the, in the episode, but we've divided into three broad categories. The first one is around how, how master trust governance works. The second one is around the opportunities and risks for member engagement. And the third thing we'll look at is considerations relating to investment and some of the developments that are going on in the law on charges in the default fund. I'm going to hand straight over to Tom, who's going to look at governance in master trusts and the trustee structure in a bit more detail. Thanks, Jay. When we're looking at ongoing trustee governance obligations, it's important to note that trustees of master trusts are subject to the general trustee duties applying to trustees of pension schemes, as well as being subject to additional obligations as a result of the scheme's status as a master trust. These all feed into the general theme of good governance. The pensions regulator's guidance refers to good governance as being the bedrock of a well-run pension scheme, stating that without good governance, you are unlikely to achieve good outcomes for members. The PMI's Master Trust Working Group recently published a report relating to governance in Master Trust schemes, stating that there is clear evidence that higher governance standards lead to better member outcomes. Most DC Master Trusts are not sectionalised by employer, meaning that there is a single set of trustees who look after the whole fund, and as such, specific governance requirements apply to them, and in particular the concept of a non-affiliated trustee is important. A Master Trust must have at least three trustees, or three directors in the case of a corporate trustee, with the majority of the trustees or trustee directors, including the chair, being non-affiliated. Non-affiliated trustees must be appointed by way of an open and transparent appointment process. This could include, for example, a process that involves the vacancy being advertised in a national newspaper, the use of a recruitment agency, or a process that meets the requirements for the appointment of member-nominated trustees or directors. Where a non-affiliated trustee is an individual, their appointment must be limited to 10 years in total with any individual period of office being limited to a maximum of five years. Where a non-affiliated trustee is a professional trustee body, they will not count as non-affiliated after a period of five years has passed since they were last appointed via an open and transparent process. 
Therefore, in practice, a professional trustee body will need to be reappointed via an open and transparent process at least once every five years if they are to remain as a non-affiliated trustee of the scheme. For the purposes of determining whether a person is non-affiliated, the following matters must be taken into account. Firstly, whether the person is a director, manager, partner or employee of an undertaking which provides advisory, administration, investment or other services in respect to the scheme, a service provider, or an undertaking which is connected to a service provider, or has been such a director, manager, partner or employee during the period of five years ending with the date of the person's appointment as a trustee. Secondly, whether the person receives any payment or other benefit from a service provider, other than a payment or other benefit in respect of a role in the governance of a personal pension scheme in which the person is required to act in the interests of some or all of the scheme members, or a payment in respect of the person's role as trustee of the relevant multi-employer scheme. Thirdly, whether or not in the person's relationship with a service provider, the person's obligations to the service provider conflict with our obligations as a trustee of the relevant multi-employer scheme, and whether their obligations as a trustee will take priority in the case of a conflict. Where a master trust fails to meet the requirements relating to the minimum number of trustees, or the need for a majority of non-affiliated trustees, due to the resignation of a trustee or a trustee ceasing to be non-affiliated, the trustees have three months to rectify this. Similarly, a new master trust has three months from the date on which it is established to comply with these requirements. Trustees of master trusts are also subject to other master trust specific requirements. For example, master trusts must put in place arrangements to encourage members of the scheme or their representatives to make their views on matters relating to the scheme known to the trustees. And Jay is going to talk about this in more detail later. And as well as the usual requirements of annual governance statements, the trustees of a master trust must also disclose in their annual governance statement how they have met the non-affiliated trustee requirements and provide details of the arrangements that they have put in place to encourage the members to make their views known. DC master trusts are also subject to the statutory regime for the authorisation and supervision of master trusts, which took effect from October 2018. This sets out a number of criteria in order for a scheme to become an authorised master trust, authorisation being required in order for a scheme to be able to operate as a master trust, as well as an ongoing regime for the supervision and monitoring of schemes which do receive authorisation, much of which is aimed at ensuring financial viability of the master trust business model and to ensure the long-term interests of members can be well served by the trust vehicle. Trustees of master trusts will also need to have regard to the pensions regulator's DC code of practice, which came into force in July 2016. The DC Code focuses on six key areas of scheme governance, setting out the regulator's expectations of trustees in complying with their legal obligations. I'm now going to pass over to Jay, who's going to talk about communication and engagement with members and procurement. Thanks very much, Tom. Yes, as Tom was saying, one of the key requirements for a master trust is to find a way to engage with its members and to listen to the views of the members uh, coming back to the trustees. And so that's a real advantage of the master trust structure because it has this ability to harness and leverage that expertise and knowledge that's been built up making a commercial authorised enterprise to really engage with members. And people will have seen that many master trust funds now offer apps, online modelling and other discussion education opportunities alongside traditional pension communication. And this helps up open that much wider discussion about finance and retirement planning to more people. And it's certainly like to be beyond the scope of some of the smaller and medium sized individual DC trusts. If employers and trustees of transferring schemes can get the procurement of their master trust right on some of these wider issues, such as member engagement, then it can really help their employees get access to more than just a pension scheme. 
and that direct relationship between master trust and member will become more and more important as we move through the economic impacts of COVID and Brexit and where for now at least it seems like the opportunities for workplace-led discussions on pensions are limited in our virtual environment. Most master trusts are of course commercial enterprises and one thorny issue for master trusts to consider when engaging with members is the potential for perceived conflicts of interest to, to arise where trustee decisions on member engagement could be influenced by the needs of the product provider rather than the member. There is a particular risk perceived where employees of the founder are appointed as trustees and the founder is also providing services such as investment management or administration services to the scheme. As Thomas said, trustees need to identify, monitor and manage all actual potential or perceived conflicts of interest, particularly as founder or provider representation on the board may result in non-trivial conflicts of interest. Concern over perceived conflicts of interest also flows through directly into the regime applicable to master trusts when communicating with members. The pension regulator's DC code makes clear that the regulator expects commercial master trusts to consider if member communications fall under the FCA's financial promotion rules, i.e. they must be fair, clear and not misleading. The regulator also expects these communications to follow the risk warning process. In addition, the administration regulations require the potential for conflicts of interest in relation to a trustee and the extent to which these can be effectively managed to be taken into account when assessing whether or not a trustee is non-affiliated. And as Tom has described, that's a key point for ensuring ongoing compliance with the authorization regime. Separately, the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations, or PECR, need to be considered by Master Trust when communicating with members. The PECR sit alongside the GDPR, the, the Law on Data Protection, and are aiming at protecting consumers' privacy in relation to a wide range of electronic marketing communications. And this covers all marketing, not just pensions, although people may be familiar with the PECR restrictions on cold calling and pension scams. However, the requirements are much wider than that. The concern with the PECR here is that any electronic communication with members which encourages members to review their contributions or aims to prompt members to take a particular action could amount to a marketing communication, which would then be caught by the PECR. Whilst this applies to all pension schemes, the risk is potentially higher for master trusts because the provider has a commercial interest in the member building and retaining their funds in the trust. And master trusts need to ensure that their communications are sufficiently neutral so as not to be considered to be marketing. However, as I described at the start, that ability to communicate and engage with members is a key element of master trust, of master trust offering. And so there needs to be some balance between that neutrality and fairness and the need to make the tools and education useful for members. And it's interesting to watch how that develops and how providers are developing more sophisticated tools in this area. Tom's now going to look at a couple of points for trustees to be aware of in relation to investment. Thanks, Jay. Investment is a key area of consideration for all pension scheme trustees, and this is no different for the trustees of master trusts. A particular hot topic for pension schemes scheme trustees generally is climate change and ESG investments. ESG investing has been on trustees' horizons for a while, with trustees having been required to record in their statement of investment principles the extent to which social, environmental or ethical considerations are taken into account in the selection, retention and realisation of investments. However, this area has been growing in importance in recent years, and this is now being reflected in increasing attention from the government. A key development came recently in the DWP consultation taking action on climate risk, which was issued in August 2020. The consultation noted trustees' duties to act in the best interests of their members, as well as their duties to act prudently, conscientiously and with good faith. Given the increased materiality of the risk of climate change, it is suggested that trustees will see an increasing need to take it into consideration. There is also the prudent person principle, 
trustees must exercise their powers of investment with the care, skill and diligence that a prudent person would exercise when dealing with investments for someone else for whom they feel morally bound to provide. The Pension Schemes Bill includes provisions for larger schemes and all authorised master trusts to be required from October 2021 to have in place effective governance, strategy, risk management and accompanying metrics and targets for the assessment and management of climate risks and opportunities. By the end of 2022, they will be required to report on these in line with the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures recommendations and there will be a mandatory penalty for failure to publish such a report. Another interesting area of development at the moment relates to so-called patient capital investment by DC schemes. There has for a while been a movement to encourage the investment of DC funds in long-term illiquid asset classes. This is because it is thought that investment in long-term assets has a potential to generate higher investment returns over the longer term, which is vital for members of DC schemes, particularly those further from retirement looking for a sustained period of growth for their pension pots. Such investment can also generate financial support for infrastructure projects and high growth companies. However, there have been a number of regulatory barriers in the way, one of the most important being the DC charges cap. This sets limits on the charges which can be imposed on default arrangements in money purchase schemes. The charges cap means that DC trustees can be wary of the higher fees that are typically charged when investing in these long-term assets and funds offering access to certain types of illiquid investment, such as venture capital and infrastructure, usually levy a performance-related fee, which is paid on top of the ordinary management fee. From October this year, there are some small amendments to the charge cap regime, which will exclude performance fees from the charge cap cal calculation in respect of members who are only invested in the fund for part of a year. This is just a small change, but it may, may remove one hurdle to patient capital investing from default funds. We know that the BBCA and others involved in private equity and infrastructure investment expect more change and development in this area. However, the government is balancing the need to ensure that trustees are able to invest in a wide range of asset classes with the desire to keep costs low and maintain clear and transparent fee information for savers. It will therefore be worth keeping an eye out for what happens in this area over the coming months. I'll now pass back to Jay. Thanks very much, Tom. That does sound like an interesting area to keep an eye on, as you say. Um, and thank you all for joining us for this second in the CMS Pension Lawcast Master Trust series. Uh, we hope you found it useful. Do look out for the next Pension Lawcast, which will be published in two weeks' time on the 2nd of February. We're waiting patiently for the Pension Schemes Bill to receive royal assent, so expect an episode on that once the bill becomes law. And we'll also have the third episode in this Master Trust series itself, which will be hosted by Caroline and Chris. We're also looking at future episodes on collective defined contribution or CDC schemes and a series on ESG. So thanks very much for listening. <laughs>